Testament reading today comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my head against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Good morning. My name is Dan Doriani and we're looking today at a at a, at a great theme and that is a sort of a post-Easter um, Easter restoration theme, and I have, an I sent the outline in, and then I wrote it out again so I could tell it to you, and did I drop it there? I can probably remember it all by myself. So what I want to do today is speak from uh, John chapter 18 to John chapter 21, and we're going to look at Jesus restoring Peter to his role as an apostle, and the basic ideas are very similar. First, Peter gets off to a great start. He has a an excellent foundation at the beginning of his ministry. That's number one, great foundation. Number two, serious failure. Peter betrayed and denied the Lord. But point three, Jesus restores his people. Restored Peter and he restores us. And we're gonna look at that from John chapter 18, verses 15 to 18 and 25 to 27. And then from chapter 21, 15 to 17, and is that coming up? It's coming up. Great. So uh, at this moment in John chapter 18, this is before the crucifixion. And we're in the last time that Jesus has with his disciples. And he's giving them a warning. And he warns them that trouble is coming. And he warns them that they're going to be sifted like wheat. And they don't quite listen. And Peter especially doesn't listen, so he goes unarmed into the presence of the high priest and all of his people who are interrogating Jesus. And this is what happens as Peter is on the outside. Jesus is being questioned inside, interrogated, confessing who he is, and we read this. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple, which would be John, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you aren't also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. And now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you aren't also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off earlier, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again. 
And at once, the rooster crowed. Now, in chapter 21, Jesus has risen, and some time has passed. We don't know how much time. And Peter, who was a fisherman, went back to fishing. And on this particular day, they caught some fish, and they ate them, and this is what happens next. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him, Jesus, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's pray for a minute. Heavenly Father, I I do thank you for uh, this powerful and also sad passage that shows that you do restore your people. You restored Peter long ago And you also restore us when we falter, one by one, even as a community. We pray that we would take great courage and direction as we meditate on your work. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So in a word, Jesus came, lived, died, rose. And he didn't just die, he died and rose to save us. And he didn't just die and rise to save us. He saves us to the end. He keeps us. And so when we falter, he restores us. That's what this passage describes. Salvation taken all the way by the Lord to the point of restoration when we falter. And we need to hear that because we do all falter in various ways. I'm going to tell you a story about a man who faltered. One of the most famous leaders of the church in all time, his name was John Wesley. John Wesley started out really well. He probably wasn't a man who had the firmest grip on the gospel, but he was totally dedicated to God. When he was a college student at Oxford University, he was so bent on following God that he joined, well, actually started and co-led a group called the Holy Club. That's not, you know, a real common name for 19-year-olds at a major university where partying and misbehavior was part of the scene as it often is The Holy Club did things like rise at four in the morning to pray for two hours, then go, this is while they're students, mind you. These are teenagers. Pray for two hours, four in the morning till six in the morning, then go to the hospital and visit people who might be lonely and have no one visiting them. And then after that, they fasted. In fact, they fasted so much that some of them worried that they might get really sick from self-denial. And around this time, he was called to the ministry, and he was ordained, and, and he preached, and, and he felt called to go to the New World and, and preached in the colony that we call Georgia today, in Savannah, and a powerful preacher. He did happen to uh, become uh, romantically attached to one of the women there, a young woman, and he courted her or wooed her, and she decided it was a bad idea, and so... Um, he was very upset with her and her father, and so he, he preached, he denounced them from the pulpit for breaking off with him and then denied them access to communion until she would repent and come back to him. 
Needless to say, that's not, you know, I don't recommend that as a wooing technique for most people. And not only did it fail as a wooing technique, but um, he was asked to leave and go back to England, please. We would say then he faltered. He failed. But you know, the thing is, when he got back to England, he heard, he heard, I would like to say he heard a sermon, but he didn't really hear a sermon. He heard somebody reading a sermon. In fact, they were reading a 200-year-old sermon. It was a good sermon. It was by Martin Luther. And, and he repented and came back to God and was, as, was far stronger, far more effective, far less uh, consumed with his own excellence, less proud than he had ever been before. The Lord restored him. Now, as Christians, we tend to like conversion stories, right? But um, I would say we should also like restoration stories. And if you look at the Bible, there's actually quite a few restoration stories, aren't there? I mean, Abraham really faltered, but God brought him back. And David, of course, faltered terribly, but God brought him back. And Elijah, for all his excellence, you know, right after his highest point, he had his lowest point. And, you know, just basically gave up on life. And, and Samson, of course, faltered terribly, and God restored him. And Jonah refused his commission, but God restored him. And Thomas became a severe doubter even after the resurrection, but God restored him. And now we have Peter, who's restored. He had to be restored even though he started really well. If you have your Bible with you, you might want to follow along with me and turn for a moment to to Luke chapter five. I'll just kind of tell you the story, but if it's not familiar, you might enjoy uh, just keeping your eye on it a little bit. And in Luke chapter five, Jesus is teaching, and there's a lot of people around, and there's so many people, he's kind of getting crowded to the, to the edge of the Sea of Galilee where he was. And, and so he said to Peter, whom he knew somewhat at least at this point, uh, can I stand in your boat? And he stood in his boat because Peter um, was mending his nets and kind of cleaning up from a, a, a bad evening of fishing. In fact, they'd fished all night long and didn't catch anything. And then after, after the teaching is over, Jesus says to Peter, um, I want you to put out a deep water now and let down your nets for a catch. Now, what was Peter's job? Help me, join along with me. Peter was a, he was a fisherman, and Jesus was a carpenter. And so who knows where the fish are? The fishermen know where the fish are. And he, you know, he's been doing everything he can to get some fish, and he's got nothing. And then the carpenter comes, uh, comes out and says, here, put your nets down over here. And Peter isn't a disciple yet, but he knows enough about Jesus that he says, you know, Master, we've worked hard all night and we caught nothing, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. And he let down the nets, and the nets are so full of fish that that Peter realized this, this isn't fish. I'm actually in the presence of God. And he said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, no, no, that's not the point. The point is not that you're sinful so you can't be with me. The point is that I'm calling you away from your fishing because from now on you're gonna catch men. Because I'm not just God with you. You know I'm God with you and that terrifies you, but I'm actually God for you. And so don't be afraid and follow me. And, and Peter did, and he pulled his boat up to shore, which means he had a boat, which means he had capital, which means he had a business, and he followed the Lord. And he really started well. Jesus said, 
leave everything and follow me. And he, he left everything. He left his wealth. He left his occupation. He left his safety. He left his wife. The Bible doesn't make much of it, but he was a married man at the time. And for at least three years, he followed Jesus. Two years anyway, he followed Jesus. And he left, therefore, safety and security and ordinary forms of happiness. He really trusted the Lord. And he started well. And not only did he start well, he showed us what it means to start well. To, to follow Jesus means to be willing to sacrifice our, our safety and our security and our, and our wealth and what would seem to make us happy or would, what would seem to make life easy. And, and the Lord, you know, the Lord rewarded him. And the reward wasn't, you know, that he got rich or something. The reward is he got to watch Jesus in his ministry, healing and teaching and, and his boldness and braveness in facing down his adversaries. He really started well. He witnessed it all. He witnessed Jesus transfigured. He, he started so well. And then, and then things went a different direction. As we know, Peter denied Christ three times. I want to tell you how he got there. Uh, before Jesus died, he told his disciples several times, look, I'm going to be betrayed Flogged, mocked, crucified, I'm arising in the third day, and the Jewish leaders are going to make, uh, make my life miserable, and you need to hear that. And, and they couldn't hear it, wouldn't hear it, didn't want to listen. And so Jesus told his disciples one more time before, on the very night when he was betrayed, before he was crucified, he said to them one more time, I'm going to be killed. And in fact, he said, the one who is going to betray me is right here at the table with me. And so all the disciples began to think, well, who could that possibly be? They, it wasn't obvious that it was Judas. And, and Peter said, I just want you to know, I'm not the one. I am, they'll all betray you, they'll all leave you. I will never leave you. Just want you to know, I'm the one person you can count on. And Jesus answered and said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, that he sift all of you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I want to make sure we hear what's going on. Number one, he's saying, you are going to face a terrible temptation. Satan's going to sift you. I just pause and say, probably most of us at some point face a terrible temptation. One that seems almost irresistible. And the Lord is warning and and he says, look, not only are you going to face this terrible temptation, Peter, but he says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when he says when you've turned again, he means you're going to fail. You're going to turn away, and then you're going to turn again. So you will turn away, you will fail, and I will restore you. When I do, I want you to bring others along with you. And Peter says, no way. You've got it wrong. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. This is all in Luke chapter 21. So Jesus knows, and Peter thinks Jesus is wrong. And Peter has um, resolve, but resolve only gets you so far. And Jesus says to him, look, before the rooster crows three times, you will, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. How does this happen? How do we resolve? Anybody here ever take a stone and skip it on water? It's kind of fun, isn't it? How many times, if, you, if the water's still and you got the right stone, how many times, if you get just right, good arm, how many times can the stone skip on the water? What do you think? It's just quite a few. 
Like you can get four or five. Anybody who's got a decent arm and, and still water can get four or five. And you know, sometimes you count all those little boop, boop, boops at the end, and you, and you count the, you know, the concentric circles. It looks like 10 or 12, and some people say 14 times you can get a stone to skip on the water. But, but if that water is, let's say, two miles across, what's gonna happen to the stone? It is going to sink eventually, because the specific density of water is one, and the specific density of most stones is around seven and a half. So it's gonna sink. And I use this as an analogy for our resolve. I'll never do that again. I'll never fail. The truth of the matter is, we are sinners, and the question is not, will you fail, but what happens after you fail? That's why we repent together and hear God's assurance of forgiveness every week, because we all fail. Now, soon after Jesus said this, Peter watched Jesus taken away and arrested. The soldiers took him, and Jesus was in charge, and he told the soldiers, you can take me, but let my servants go. My servants go, and most of them scattered. But two of them followed. The, the one who was known, we read about it, to the high priest, which would be John, who apparently had a pretty high rank and some, some strong connections to the powers and the authorities of, of Israel. So he followed along, and he took Peter with him because Peter really wanted to keep his vow and never falter and never fail. He says, look, I'm, I'm ready to die. And of course, sometimes, you know, we are ready to die. So I, I would love to go into the details, but I'm not going to go into the details. I'll just tell you that this week, somebody told me how disappointed they were in somebody who promised them, I will support you no matter what. And then, the, and then a little thing came up and they didn't support them. It's like, you know, the stories about, about um, you know, people who are in love and courting each other, and they say, oh, you know, sweetie, I would, my, my beloved, I would climb the highest mountain and swim the deepest sea just to be with you. And the beloved says, well, why don't you come on over? And the answer is, well, you know, it's raining. So, you know, we make these big vows, and we don't always follow through. And the way it, the way it transpires is, of course, obviously, if Jesus is, is taken by the high priest, and, he's, and, and the high priest has a courtyard and soldiers and authorities everywhere, and Peter's walking in there, he has to know that he, you know, he could be arrested, he could even die. He's willing to do that. But then, then things take a, a sort of a, a funny turn, and that is John gets in to the courtyard, and Peter can't get in for a little while, and then, then John says, well, I'm going to get him in, I'm going to talk to the to the person at the door. And it's quite clear from the original language that this person is, is not a male soldier. It's a girl. The word that's used is pidiske. You know the word pediatrics and so forth, right? That's, you know, taking care of children. The, the pidiske is someone who's just leaving childhood. 11, 12, 13-year-olds. For some reason, a 12-year-old girl is standing at the door. And this 12-year-old girl, maybe 13, maybe 11, says to Peter, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And you know, he's willing to face down a soldier, but when a, when a girl asks him, surprised suddenly, and, and the way she puts it is like, you're not one of those, are you? You're not one of those people. You're not one of those evangelical Christians, are you? And it's so easy, oh, no, 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 I'm not one of those. And so he denies Jesus 
the first time. No, I'm not. And then, and then a second person asks, you aren't one of his disciples, are you? Again, the question is, everybody's warming themselves by the fire, and somebody says, well, you, hey, don't I recognize, do I recognize you? I'm, no, you can't be one of them. And he's, you know, he's, he's denied Christ once, and it's easy to go down the same path, and it's kind of convivial, we're all around a fire, I don't want to be an outsider. And he denies Jesus a second time. And then a third person, after hearing the accusation, says, now, wait a second, actually, I think I do recognize you. Now, I don't know if you know the story, but when Jesus was arrested, Peter had a sword, and he pulled it out and flailing wildly cut somebody's ear off. And Jesus, in an amazing display of his kindness and compassion, picked the ear up and put it back on and healed his own, his own arrester. And a relative of that guy says, Didn't, what, there was somebody with a sword, and he sure looks like you. And Peter, of course, has denied Jesus twice by now, and it's so easy just to keep on going down that path. And so he blurts out, I don't even know the man. And so now he's denied him three times. And we have a contrast going on here. Uh, Peter's in the courtyard denying everything. And Jesus, which I didn't read to you, but the rest of John, chapter 19 and 20, Jesus is inside in front of the high priest, and he's confessing everything, who he is, and testifying in ways that are going to get him crucified. And so there's this, there's this enormous tension or, or, or contrast between Peter saving his skin and Jesus giving up his life for us, and and. Jesus loving Peter and Peter calling down curses on himself if he even knows who Jesus is. And there's, there's almost no trait of a sin that could make this worse. He's been warned and he ignored the warning. He swore he wouldn't do it and he's doing it. Not only is he doing it, he's doing it repeatedly, three times. Solemnly, I swear I don't know the man. Vehemently, He's doing it from a position of leadership, setting a terrible example for other people. He's doing it again despite warning and prediction, despite resolve of the contrary, and we think, how on earth can this happen? And of course, the answer is, it can happen because we overestimate our skills, and we overestimate our strength, and we're proud, and we're not humble, and we go charging into difficult situations, Convinced of our own strength, I know I'll do what's right, instead of humbly remembering our weakness and praying. And it's, it's important to realize that Peter only got into this position because he really did believe in Jesus. He wanted to be loyal. I mean, he wanted to be true to Jesus. Every, of the disciples, Judas betrayed him. John is there. Nine fled. And Peter's there. Peter's one of only two that are loyal. He wants to be loyal. He wants to do what's right. But the Christian is someone who understands, we understand that we, we don't simply want to do what's right, we also fail to do what's right. In our culture today, we're a, we're a meritocratic society. We're an achievement-oriented society. We're a resume-building society, especially around here. Not, not, in every, not in every city or town in America, not in every part of St. Louis even, but around here, you know, we list our accomplishments. 
We add things, oh, I did this, I better add that to my resume. I better add that to my, to my curriculum vita. And, and we count our blessings and we maybe count, pat ourselves on the back for our blessings and we congratulate ourselves and we're, we're pretty self-sufficient. We may not be individualistically self-sufficient, but maybe I and my friends together, we can take care of everything. And something like that is what happened with Peter. His pride, and then, and then he falls. And it says that as that happened, Jesus happened to be by a window, and he happened to catch Peter's eye, one of the Gospels tells us. And Peter began to weep bitterly, Luke 22 tells us. Just their eyes met for one second, and Peter says, it's true, everything Jesus said I did. And he begins to cry. But they were tears of repentance, not tears of self-pity. And tears of repentance and tears of self-pity are very different. This is the beginning of Peter turning back to the Lord because God orchestrated that Jesus happened to be by that window at that moment that their eyes happened to catch because Jesus is part of the trying God's plan of restoration. You know, in the book of, of Joel, there's that, that, that prophecy that there's gonna be a locust plague and it's gonna come and strip and devour. But then at the end, at the end, God says, I, the Lord, will take pity on my people and I will repay you for the years the locust has eaten. I'm gonna restore, I'm gonna repay. It's not hard to think of a year the locust has eaten for most of us. For most of us, the last year has been a, a locust-ridden year. I know that some of you, you introverts are, fi- are happy you finally had your year. It's like, people aren't talking to me. What could possibly be better? You know, I always wanted to work at home all the time. And now, now I'm good at it and I really like it. But most people have had a tough time. And a lot of people have lost money and have lost connections and haven't seen people they love and haven't been able to travel and, and you know, their family's scattered and it's really broken their heart. I, Debbie and I had a grandbaby born this year and praise God, she was born in St. Louis. It would have broken my heart if she'd been born in Arizona to not see anything. So the Lord restores the years that the, that the locust has eaten, and, and he restores, even though we fail through a bravado and cowardice and foolish vows and all the rest. And the beautiful part of this is what happens in John chapter 21. As you know, Jesus didn't just predict, he did it. He died, and he rose again on the third day, exactly as he said. And then there's this in-between period where Jesus is appearing to the disciples, sometimes and sometimes not, and, and the disciples are maybe beginning to learn that Jesus is fully alive and death couldn't hold him and he's the savior, but Jesus isn't with them all the time. And so they're waiting for Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit's given. And during this sort of awkward period, one day the disciples are in Galilee and, and Peter, who's an activist kind of fellow, says apparently something like, let's stop sitting around here and let's pull out those boats and those nets we used to use and let's catch some fish. And they caught some fish at night, so they make a fire and have breakfast, and Jesus comes to them at breakfast, 
and has a chat with them. And he, he says to Peter, Simon, do you truly love me more than these? Now, we don't know what these is. These fishing implements? Do you love me more than your old job? Maybe. Do you love me more than these other disciples? Yeah. There was a time when Peter said, yes, I love you more. They may all fail you, but I won't. I am the most loyal disciple you have. That's what he said right before he denied Jesus three times. So Peter, here's the question, do you love me more than these? And he doesn't say, yes, I love you more. He, he used to say it, but now he just says, I love you. I'm not going to claim anything more. Now, it's true that Jesus, maybe you heard this, in Christian circles sometimes people make much of this, that Jesus asked, do you love me with one kind of word for love in the agape family, godly, selfless love? And Peter answers with another word, sort of like affectionate love, a little bit less exalted. Um, but I don't think that's really the point here. Jesus asks him again a minute later, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then a third time Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And we read it a little while ago. It said that Peter was grieved, not because different words were being used, but he was grieved because Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? I mean, isn't it enough that I say once I love you? I mean, do you have to ask me three times? Maybe it was the thought he had. And of course, the answer is, yes, he did have to ask three times. And the, the hard-hearted answer is, Jesus had to ask three times because Peter denied him three times. But that's, that's not the way of Jesus. And if you look carefully at the passage as a whole, it's quite clear that Jesus is not trying to make Peter miserable for failing him three times, but something very, very different. Peter denied Jesus publicly, solemnly, vehemently three times. And now Jesus is giving Peter three opportunities publicly, vehemently to say, Lord, I love you, I love you, you know that I love you. And he gets to be as strong, as vehement in his affirmation of his love of Jesus as he was vehement in his denial. Now you may think to yourself, oh Dan, you're just, you're just making us feel good by saying this, that's just the happy 21st century grace-filled Jesus. But here's, here's what I wanna tell you. Notice what happens after each statement of I love you. Each statement of I love you is followed by Jesus saying, I restore you. Because it goes like this, do you love me? Peter says, you know that I love you? Then feed my lambs. Do you love me? I love you. Then care for my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. So Jesus knows that Peter was disqualified three times by his denial, and so he restores him three times, not just to love, not just to salvation, not just to fellowship with God, but to the role that he, he had no earthly right to claim for himself ever again. How could you possibly claim I should be a leader of the church after you denied Jesus at the moment of truth three times? And the answer is you could never claim it, but Jesus gives it. He's in the business of restoring his people. It's what he does. He did it with Samson and David and Jonah and Elijah. He does it with us.
about uh, 25 years ago when I was still playing a lot of basketball, I used to play a lot of basketball, and uh, some people invited me to a church outreach basketball thing on you know, Thursday afternoons. And Dan, we know you love to play basketball and you're a seminary professor, so why don't you come play basketball with us and we have non-Christians coming. Okay, great, I'll play basketball. And this is like week three or five maybe at the most. And somehow or other, the teams became extremely uneven and my team was, was woefully outmanned and we, we lost badly you know, three games in a row, and nobody was kind enough to say, let's redraw the teams. And our team wasn't terrible, except it was bad, but we had one player who was unbelievably bad. And he was part of the basketball outreach. He'd been, he, was, he was a non-Christian, he was coming for the first time. And if you know anything about basketball or anything about any sport at all, you will get what, what I'm gonna tell you next. Every time we would pass him the ball, he, wherever he was, he would just shoot it immediately. He could be three feet away. He could be 48 feet away. He would just grab the ball and shoot at once. And so then there's finally a game where we're doing well, and somehow it could go our way, and the score is 10-10. It's sudden death. And, and so, you know, the other team missed, and I got a rebound, and I did what basketball players are supposed to do. You, you don't ask questions sometimes. You see your teammate streaking down the side. You just pass it to him. And as soon as I passed it, I realized I'd passed it to that guy. And so I called out to him. I said, you don't, I, I wanted to tell him, wait for your teammates. You don't have to shoot. We're coming. Don't overestimate your skills here. That's what was in my mind. But what I said was, you don't have to. And then he, and then he you know, he's 35 feet away. And he starts, and I said, I said you don't have to shoot it just as he shot it and missed by eight feet. And so it sounded like I was taunting my own teammate, shoot it, you moron. And the moron did shoot it, and he did miss, and the other team got the ball, and they came down and won immediately. And, and so it seems that the seminary professor is taunting the unbelieving guest. I gotta tell you, I didn't show up the next week. And I really had to go in a hurry after that, but just, yeah, I can't stay around today. Sorry, guys, I gotta go. I felt, I felt so disqualified to be a part of basketball outreach. <laughs> Don't invite the professor, he'll ruin everything. I don't know, somehow I stayed in ministry. The Lord was gracious and uh, restored, he restores, he forgives. And they're little things and they're big things and, and he asks us, the real question is not have you erred, have you failed, of course we've erred, of course we've failed, the question is what next? And the question really is about our loves, isn't it? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your fishing implements? Do you love me more than your job, your career, your career path? You know, we could go to, to Jesus himself who showed at his temptation what he did and didn't love. He didn't love bread. Turn these stones to bread. Nope, I don't live for pleasure. I love God more than I love food. And jump from the temple. Make, make a splash. Be famous. Every, everybody go wow at you. Nope, Jesus didn't do that. Or, you know, throw yourself off the temple and, and 
know and experience that God will take care of you. Wouldn't it be great to just know everything will turn out all right, that everything will be fine, we don't understand why it's going the way it's going, but wouldn't it be great just, just to know? And Jesus said, no, I'm not gonna live for knowledge. I'm gonna live by faith. Even those perplexing things that I can't imagine how this is happening, I'm gonna live by faith. I don't love Jesus, I love God more than I love knowledge. Bow down, third temptation. I love God more than power. The question is not, will you fail? You will fail. The question is not, will you need to be restored? You will be restored. The question is, do you understand that Jesus came to die and to rise to save you and to restore you every time you fail? And all that's required is that you love Jesus and he'll restore you. And I say that as the best news I can offer, that Jesus loves us and just asks that we love him back and saves us in the beginning once and then restores us again and again and again for life with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this uh, this hard account, it's, it's hard to hear what Peter did. It, it breaks our hearts to know that you were betrayed by Peter, that you knew it would happen. You might say that you let it happen. It's hard to witness, but it's good to witness your restoration. And we take it not only as a story about Peter, but a story about the way you deal with your people, always, so many people in the Old Testament, now Peter in the New. And Lord, we ask for your restorative grace for us and that we would live humbly and joyfully as a consequence. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.